Okay. Good afternoon. I think we'll get started. Um, so for those who don't know me, I'm Mary Chamberlain, Program Director of the Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program, and I'd like to introduce Dr. Christiana Costa for today's presentation. She uh, comes to us from the University of Pennsylvania, where she did her residency and internship, and also is a graduate of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in Philadelphia. And throughout her fellowship, she's done some wonderful uh, retrospective studies on lymphoma, some broader presentations at annual meetings. She had a poster at the National um, American Society of Hematology meeting last year evaluating or presenting data on a phase two study of bendamustine and rituximab, followed by 90 yttrium ibritomumab tioxetan for untreated follicular lymphoma. <laughs> Say that 10 times quick. And most recently, she was um, one of our, our first actual fellow to um, volunteer and participate in a new global health oncology elective that we started in October, which she will tell you more about. Uh, she has no um, financial conflicts of interest, and she does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. She's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So without further ado, Dr. Costa. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, everybody, for coming to my talk. I appreciate you all being here. Um, as Mary said, here's my disclosure. Um, so we have several objectives that I'd like to cover. Um, first, I'd like to review the historical development of global health education. Um, oops, 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 oops. Oh, I just screwed up. I screwed something up here. What did I just do? I took somebody out. Oh. Some barriers facing global health education. So what we now refer to as global health derives from an earlier discipline in academia called international health um, and uh, was preceded by the practice of tropical medicine and hygiene. But as an entity, this didn't quite exist 25, 30 years ago. Interest in global health has been rising. Uh, in the 80s, only about 6% of medical students participated in electives. Um, by 2011, almost a third of medical students have participated in some sort of international activity. Surveys note that medical students are also asking about um, experiences abroad, um, showing that they're factoring into um, decision making, into schools. And this is also um, portraying into uh, selections into residencies and fellowships. In the late 90s, um, only really uh, emergency medicine fellowships uh, were available. But now, uh, by this current year, um, multiple residency programs are offering uh, global health tracks to accommodate a trainee's interest in global work. Um, opportunities can vary from international electives, similar to what I did for a month, um, to two-year-long fellowships during or at the completion of traditional training. In addition, a growing number of low- and middle-income countries are also establishing their own global health uh, education centers and institutions. 
But when I look at this list, I can't help but ask, where is oncology? <clears throat> Cancer is one group of non-communicable disease. Non-communicable diseases in general are the leading cause of death worldwide, estimated to kill about 40 million people each year. This figure shows the probability of dying um, from different types of non-communicable diseases between ages 30 and 70. Cancer is the second leading cause of death globally and responsible for 8.8 .8 million deaths in 2015, which is nearly one in six deaths. And the number of new cases is expected to rise by about 70% over the next two decades. This pie chart here shows the worldwide cancer incidence in 2012, uh, the top 10 cancer sites. Uh, lung, certainly the most dominant, followed um, by breast. In the US, breast is the most common. About 70% of deaths uh, occur in low and middle income countries. And only about 30% of these countries have treatment services available. And similar to US data, lung is the most deadly. Tobacco use is the most important risk factor. And cancer-causing infections like hepatitis um, and HPV are responsible for up to 25% of cancers. Targeting and prevention of these may be a strategy to help decrease mortality um, and incidence. And this figure shows the incidence of cancer in men and women in blue and mortality in red based on geography. I'd like you to notice how screening tools help to increase incidence in the more developed countries. And towards the bottom, the disparity of the less developed regions of Africa and Asia, how incidence almost matches mortality, showing the biases and limitations of diagnosis and treatment. So to talk a little bit about Rwanda, Rwanda is a small country in South Central Africa with a total population of 11.8 million and a life expectancy of about 65 years old. Almost half of the population lives below the national poverty line. Much of the country's government and infrastructure has been rebuilt since the genocide in 1994. Paul Kagame, featured here, commanded the rebel force that ended the genocide and took office in 2000. He remains the president today, 17 years later. Although he runs a repressive regime with little room for free speech, um, he's also widely admired as one of the most effective leaders in Africa. A country that was in ashes 23 years ago is now safe and clean. Uh, it's one of the least corrupt countries in Africa, and the per capita income has tripled. Um, but just to give you a relative, yes? Um, so I think that they've tried to move away from the distinctions of the Hutu and the Tutsi. Yeah. Um, but um, the per capita income is about $550 a year, um, just to show you kind of how destitute the country is. 
So Rwanda follows a universal health care model, uh, which provides health insurance through a system called Mutuelle de Santé. Uh, the system is a community-based health insurance um, which, in which residents pay uh, premiums into a local health fund and draw from it when they need um, medical care. Premiums are paid according to a sliding scale where the poorest, as judged uh, by their communities, pay nothing. Um, the Ministry of Health estimates that over 25% of Rwandans get free care. Um, there are thousands of community health workers elected by their villages to help keep their people safe and healthy. There are hundreds of clinics, um, all with basic equipment and essential medications. And, I know, it's great. Um, and each of Rwanda's 30 districts has a hospital um, with a minimum of 15 doctors and are able to offer uh, basic surgical services. In 2012, about 45% of this system was funded uh, by premium payments um, and the rest by government and international donors. Uh, in three particularly poor districts, uh, Partners in Health has worked with the Ministry of Health to reconstruct the health system um, from the ground up, including building three hospitals. The newest, Butaro Hospital, is, which we'll be talking about, um, is referred to as one of the best in Central Africa. So Butaro Hospital, as I mentioned, is in the Burera district. Um, it opened in 2011 and has 156 beds. Uh, it also serves as a training center for medical education in East Africa. The adjoining cancer center opened in 2012. Uh, it offers comprehensive cancer care and is the only one in the country. Um, and it also um, has people coming in from other countries, surrounding countries like the Congo and Burundi. Um, and soon to join the campus um, is the University of Global Health. Um, while I was there, they were beginning construction. And this is where uh, students will be spending time working with uh, Harvard Medical School faculty, Rwandan policymakers, and others, um, learning how to deliver um, high quality health care in poor communities and earning a Master of Science in Global Health Delivery. So some of the photos featured here are care of the mass design group. Um, so Partners in Health served as the main contractor for the hospital construction, um, and volunteer architects from mass design um, created the site and provided uh, on-site supervision of construction activities. However, construction was led out um, and by ex an exclusively Rwandan team, and to date, the project has created over 2,000 jobs for the population in Barrera. Here you can see the hilltop facility. And these are some of my own photos. This here is their, can their inpatient cancer ward. And this is their ambulatory clinic. And this is their infusion room. So in addition to oncology, services provided include internal medicine, uh, maternity, 
pediatrics. They also have an emergency department and a surgical ward with two operating rooms. Um, they also have extensive laboratory and pathology capabilities and a relationship with uh, Brigham uh, Women's in Health that they can send uh, difficult, particularly difficult cases to uh, their pathologists. Butaro District Hospital um, is an example of how to achieve um, modern hospital in rural Africa with um, an academic environment uh, capable of providing world-class medical care. So to talk a little bit about my own experience, this, this is actually their ambulance, it's not, not, a, not a joke. <laughs> um, so there was an effort uh, created um, based on a partnership with the Ministry of Health in Rwanda to travel to Butaro Cancer Center of Excellence um, with intentions to facilitate the exchange of knowledge in cancer care and provide clinical care according to local guidelines um, and best established practice. This opportunity serves interested uh, fellows and attendings, um, and particularly interested me for multiple reasons. Um, when I was in medical school, I had the opportunity to travel abroad to Ecuador um, and practice primary care, and now in my f um, specialty training, it was um, a pleasure to be able to experience uh, practicing oncology. Um, it's fascinating to see how people practice in it with limited resources. Um, I think it fuels creativity, it requires patience, um, and fosters leadership skills. Uh, and then you come back to the states with a sense of appreciation for what all that we have to offer here as well. Uh, so a little bit about what my schedule looked like. Um, so I traveled with Mary Chamberlain. Uh, we arrived early in October to Kigali, which is the capital. Uh, we spent some time adjusting through the weekend and traveled north to Butaro uh, to begin our work week. Clinic days are Mondays through Thursday, with Tuesday being their procedure day, where um, I was able to assist with breast biopsies, uh, bone marrow biopsies, um, and cervical biopsies, to name a few. Um, the first two weeks were spent predominantly seeing patients in the clinic. Um, types of patients that we saw here were breast cancer patients and follow-up on tamoxifen. Um, we saw uh, patients with CML on Gleevec. Um, there were colon cancer patients in remission. Um, and there were newly diagnosed patients who required um, management and treat treatment strategies. We rarely saw lung cancer. Fridays, there is no clinic, um, so we attended inpatient rounds, um, and the day was typically done by about 10 in the morning. The second half of the month, I uh, attended to the inpatient unit. Um, round, we rounded on complicated patients um, like mycosis fungoides uh, with ulcerated tumors, uh, liver failure from metastatic breast cancer. Um, we also saw patients there uh, for their day of treatment evaluation, so we checked their labs and saw how they were doing, um, saw how they did with their previous cycle, and sent them off to the infusion suite for chemotherapy. And as part of the educational efforts, I prepared um, a basic lecture on CML, um, which we gave to the staff, um, including attendings and residents, nurses, and ancillary support. And it really shaped the talk based on their protocols available for diagnosis and treatment strategies to make it applicable to them. 
And although this rotation was a great experience for me, uh, we want to make sure that our interactions are having a positive and measurable effect on the Rwandan staff. Um, it can be difficult deriving a list of competencies when we're coming from a high-income country um, and challenge to meet the needs of low-income countries. Um, but once we returned to the States, we reflected on our experience and thought about the best way, uh, thought the best way to ask these questions would be to have the Rwandan doctors and nurses and those whom we interacted with to fill out evaluations. And this is, this has been a work in progress. Um, so we created some objectives, uh, basic objectives, based on our mission statements um, for both attending and fellow participants. Um, essentially, you know, supervising, um, the attending's responsibility would be to supervise the fellow, um, to help with projects that the Butaro Cancer Center leadership um, requested, um, providing input on medical protocols, um, providing lectures, and specifically the last point of um, observation of palliative care and end-of-life discussions. Um, this, this has been an area that um, is in the very early stages in Rwanda. Um, it is Rwandan culture to not really discuss death, um, and so I think that the medical professionals who realize the importance of palliative care have really made a great effort into trying to move this forward, and I think this will be an area um, to really develop moving forward. Um, and Fellow had similar objectives, a little less in the um, role of leadership with Butaro. And so here is a sample of a de-identified um, evaluation that we had returned to us. Um, we came up with various competencies that we hoped to meet during our visit. Um, however, upon reviewing these evaluations, I found that it further complicates effective assessment of competency. Um, so it's well described how host faculty may overrate their visitors for the sake of maintaining goodwill. Um, and as a result, trainees can overestimate their, com uh, their capability and competence. Additionally, this evaluation compared to the previous brought to light that um, low middle income countries assessing trainees from high income countries may lack a frame of reference for effective assessment. So what are we expected to know or not know? How should we be compared alongside local trainees? And how should our learning improvement be determined given the generally short duration of our visits? And then there's this evaluation, which made me realize that perhaps we need to provide clarity on the evaluation itself. So just to show it's truly a work in progress. Um, there was some additional commentary. Uh, one person thought that they would like more time for him to stay with us. We really appreciated his insight. Another comment, she connects immediately with the patients and staff. Her knowledge is tremendous, and her ability to teach is remarkable. Uh, there were areas for improvement, um, such as procedures in resource-limited environment, again, speaking to the challenge that we have, um, being in a high-income country, to be able to do this. Uh, and then there is associate other part of hospital on visitors' experiences, not only oncology and not only in presentations, which may be challenging just to decode in itself. 
Um, and then there were really helpful suggestions like training in onco topics with a focus on basics in oncology and beginning. Um, so perhaps next time we go, uh, being armed with basic lectures um, to give the trainees there. But figuring out how to perform evaluations isn't the only challenge we face, and there are many reasons why um, more physicians struggle to pursue global health opportunities, and we'll get into that next. But just in summary, to go back to our initial mission, um, facilitate exchange of knowledge in treating cancer, I feel like we did that very effectively. Um, I know that I ha certainly um, had a broadened education and experience being able to be there. Um, and I think that we did a fairly good job at providing a clinical care in, in accordance with their guidelines there. So our mission, in my opinion, was complete. So while I was in Rwanda, I made a very generalized observation um, that those working abroad um, and doing these global health experiences, like what I was doing or people who were there for their master's program, um, were in the midst of their training, dare I say, in their younger years. Um, and the more senior physicians that I interacted with, um, those who had a career on their belt, under their belt, um, were now finding the time to pursue an interest they may have carried all along. Um, and they hadn't recently completed fellowship, if you know what I mean. Um, so when I read this article um, about the practical challenges to building academic careers in global health by Dan Palazuelos, um, who's a graduate of one of the first residency programs dedicated to global health at Brigham, um, Brigham and Women's, I found that someone had already described my observation. So the pathway in figure two um, shows people who work abroad, and I'll highlight sort of where I am in my training, um, how we have periodic opportunities to travel. And for someone like Palazuelos, who has made his career about global health, perhaps the U shape right in the middle is possible, but for someone like myself and the colleagues that I work with, it may not be something that's attainable. And it, instead of having the U, it lies more as a flat line and then dipping back down to being able to work abroad in, later in a career. I think to expand on um, possibilities for people to shape their careers like this. Um, academic health centers, leaders, and staff um, need to strike a better balance between the level of support uh, given for global health activities, highlighting the importance of the work, um, and the expectation of the participants. Palazuelos also defined five barriers um, to the academic career model with global health. Um, somebody pursuing global health work outside of traditional research, like historical HIV studies, um, those who help to perhaps build policies or develop um, health systems that may benefit thousands, it can fail to generate the traditional peer-reviewed documentation which we base academic achievement off of. Um, there's also a global health tax, which we can refer to as the pay cut that physicians may take um, when there's no funding and they're taking time from their clinic schedule and not generating RVUs to be able to, to work abroad. Um, I certainly don't have to explain the unsustainable domestic clinical work that it's so hard to get away from to be able to partake in an opportunity like this. 
And the lack of training programs is mostly uh, because this is a skill set that really hasn't been adequately defined um, and continues to evolve. Tied to that is the quality and supply of the mentors for this type of career that only um, is sometimes available. <clears throat> so I wanted to know how these opinions fit with the physicians at DHMC. And I sent a survey out to all of the um, hematology and oncology attendings um, to fill out asking them you know, where they were in their practice. I was surprised to see that over half had actually already traveled abroad for their career, which was great and inspiring to see as I'm on the forefront of my own career. Um, and when thinking about taking, um, partaking in a, an experience at the present time, we sort of got mixed reviews, but it certainly seems to be an interest um, over the next five to ten years. So I asked some questions hoping to clarify what the barriers were to engaging in this activity. Uh, physicians were able to choose from one of five answers, highly likely, somewhat likely, neutral, somewhat unlikely, or highly unlikely. Um, so as to how much impact does clinic schedule affect your decision? The answer here, was uh, the most uh, common answer here was highly likely, um, and another 25% felt that it was at least somewhat likely to contribute to uh, their decision to go. Personal safety, somewhat likely. Um, but 30% also felt neutral about it. Uh, how much impact does family affect? Um, this was 100% actually, 100% felt that it was at least somewhat likely to factor into decision. Compensation, most felt neutral, um, but 23% found that it would be somewhat likely to affect their decision. And how much impact does professional growth affect your decision? 46% um, found that it was somewhat likely to, to have a, an impact. The top three concerns um, were clinical obligations, familial obligations, and academic obligations. I'm hopeful that this presentation and my experience can help bring to light an opportunity that nearly all clinicians here at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center are interested in, um, and perhaps the Cancer Center's leadership can find a way to support um, these efforts. I feel that physicians would find great satisfaction, uh, pleasure, and meaning in being able to um, help uh, this particularly underserved population. And to speak a little bit about academic obligations, I just want to highlight um, some of the research um, and publication opportunities that I, I've been able to take part in, as well as some of the other physicians there. Um, so there, we've had an abstract accepted to ASCO this year, um, detailing our um, initiative at creating this fellowship, um, as it's been one of the first. Uh, the Aorta Conference is an international conference on cancer in Africa, um, which brings together multidisciplinary specialists from uh, the global cancer community to reduce the impact of cancer in Africa. Uh, we have two abstracts that have been submitted to that conference. Mary Chamberlain and Greg Sangalis uh, set out to find if an overseas collaboration uh, between the University of Rwanda College of Medicine um, was feasible at, uh, and, and effective at um, determining molecular profiles of gastric cancer by next generation sequencing. 
Uh, they found that there are P10 mutations, um, which are, could be potential targets for uh, gastric cancer. And um, Mary Chamberlain has also submitted a grant to the American Cancer Society um, looking at LCN, which is lipocalin 2 protein, um, which is uh, overexpressed in um, endemic areas of malaria um, and has been shown to have been increased in different cancer types. So she's looking at it particularly in uh, triple negative breast cancer in Rwanda. So to look back in our objectives, I hope that we um, reviewed the historical development of global health education. Um, we summarized the Rwandan healthcare initiatives. Uh, you heard a little bit about my own experience, um, and we spoke a little bit about the barriers that we face moving forward. I want to thank you. Um, these are some of our team that we worked with um, in Rwanda. Dr. Ejid, uh, Dr. Kate. Dr. Kurt was a Global Health Fellow who was there doing a master's program, Dr. Lansigan, and um, Dr. Chamberlain and myself, we got caught in a rainstorm. We weren't aware you should always carry an umbrella with you. <laughs> and before I go, I just want to leave us with this quote um, from Agnes Pinaguahu, who is uh, the Rwandan uh, Minister of Health and also a clinical professor in pediatrics here at the Geisel School of Medicine. Let's use our time and talents as healthcare workers, researchers, and journalists to work together towards a future in which where a patient lives doesn't determine if they live. And I'll leave you with this photo, which was completely unstaged, um, that I took on, our, on a walk um, while we were in uh, Butaro. Thank you. Any questions? Yes. Is this sort of program safe from Donald Trump? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> the funding uh, so far has come from Norris Cotton Cancer Center um, through, uh, through the former director. So we're in the process of proposing continuation of the budget. As far as I know. full expectation of going down and seeing, you know, methotrexate and maybe cisplatin um, agents and really nothing else or not having the ability to offer patients treatment. Um, and they have entire protocols of diagnostic strategies, treatment strategies. They have first, second, um, sometimes even third line treatment options for different cancers. So um, I was really, really impressed with seeing how much available there is there. Um, very surprising. The regulatory barriers to research that we have here, do they extend to what we are collaborating with overseas and how difficult The regulatory barriers to, you know, the hurdles that we have to face, IRB, mm -hmm. do 
today, because we are collaborating, I assume that we have tried with the sentence over there. How difficult is it to overcome that? Um, so, I mean, I found it fairly easy if you have people on the ground that are collaborating with you and they're very interested in, and um, supportive of collaborative research. So we, we did put the gastric cancer proposal through the IRB at the University of Rwanda and didn't have, and, and here, I mean, you have to get approval at both places. Um, but there really weren't any very research. So I think it's, it probably depends on the institutions that you have working with, but for the most part, there's a lot of interest in Can you talk about um, how you were able to communicate most of them speak in French or Kenya or Rwanda and how that workflow happened? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. So um, it, most of the patients that we saw didn't speak English, um, few actually, if any. Um, there were translators available. Um, they were primarily nursing staff, or even some of the doctors um, were able to speak in Kinyi, Rwanda, which is the uh, local dialect there. Um, some patients also spoke French, which was a possibility, um, but mostly um, language was sort of limited by what our translators could tell the patients um, and you know how how effective our communication was is questionable um, because I think sometimes the translators didn't even really understand what point we were trying to get across um, this was particularly difficult when we were trying to talk to patients about dying um, because, as I previously mentioned, um, it's really not Rwandan culture to talk about death, um, and a lot of the translators felt it really difficult to be able to clearly um, and effectively communicate the message we were trying to get across um, because they sort of took an ownership of, of what they were saying, um, and, and so that was, that was particularly challenging. Yes. Yeah, that's that's really difficult. Um, especially when we have programs here like palliative care in which, you know, maybe not necessarily accepting death but confronting death, we, we do so often. Um, I think they're just really respecting the boundaries of patients and, you know, providing as much medical support as we could, um, but clearly acknowledging that either um, more treatment would hurt them um, and, you know, if they wish to sort of stay in the hospital, um, that was difficult. We really wanted patients to be able to get home to their district hospitals at least, um, if, if, even if they did not want to um, die at, in their actual home, um, they were at least transferred to a district hospital um, where the actual death process could occur. Um, so those were sort of efforts that we were able to facilitate doing. Can you talk a little bit about um, the nursing and ancillary support that was available? Yeah, so um, they have excellent support systems there. Um, I'd say that the 
infusion room is basically run by their nurses. Um, the nurses are actually the ones who also mix the chemotherapy there. Um, they have a, a chemo hood um, prior to administering. Um, the nurses are able to, you know, not only do they work with translating, um, they each patient sort of comes into their visit with a little pink book, um, and that's sort of the book they carry around to each of their doctor visits. It's um, almost like a report card, and the doctors in charge of, or the nurse in, in this case, um, can be in charge of writing down a summary of the visit um, in English so that each time the patient goes to different doctors, you can sort of tell what has happened previously. Um, nurses were, oh geez, extremely helpful in, in all of the inpatient care, um, coordinating, um, help with getting CAT scans. Um, CAT scans are done in the capital city of Kigali, which is about two and a half hours away from where we were in Butaro, so patients would have to travel. Um, they're in charge of sort of filling out the uh, referral forms. Um, and so, yeah, I think everybody sort of works as a, as a team there, um, and, and everybody's integral, yeah. Do they have pharmacists or just the nurses? Oh, were there pharmacists? <laughs> In terms of pharmacists. I'd say it was a lot easier. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, there were obviously the challenges when the patients forgot their cadine or their little pink notebook. Um, you had no idea what had happened, you know, when they went to see the surgeon or um, what the previous doctors had said. Um, so, you know, it's the importance of writing things down is really crucial. <laughs> Literally writing the same thing over and over again about four times to get it on every piece of paper that's going in whatever direction. Yeah. Curious, the um, sounds like the book is really an important piece for the clinicians, but I'm curious where you were. Two questions: What is the literacy or health literacy that you found of the population that you were treating? Also, what's the smoking incidence considering the lower lung cancer rate? Um. So health literacy in terms of uh, what was written in the Cadine, I believe was none, um, mostly because we were also writing in English. And so even if it were, even if uh, patients did know how to read and write, I'm, I'm afraid they wouldn't be able to understand really what we were writing, um, not to mention sometimes doctor handwriting. Um, 
But yeah, so so literacy wasn't very um, high. Um, and smoking, so I don't think that the reason we weren't seeing lung cancer is because it wasn't being diagnosed. I think, um, as is often, it presents at late stage and there's really not great therapeutic options. Um, so I think that was the limitation behind that. Um, but uh, we occasionally saw, just in traveling, saw people smoking. Um, being in within the hospital grounds, I didn't see much of it. Um, but I don't think that's to say that uh, in the inner city that there isn't um, people who smoke. Yes. What made this the location where the hospital was built? It seemed to be way off the countryside. Um, so these the three regions in particular um, are where Partners in Health has sort of um, partnered with the Ministry of Health to create um, improved centers. Um, and it just so happened to be one of their efforts to create a comprehensive um, cancer center um, that that's where they created it. I'm not sure that we know why exactly it was there in particular, but yeah, so I mean, they, Partners in Health have decided to work with the Ministry of Health to rebuild this hospital as a district hospital. And then, then, then after the fact, they kind of got the idea that this would make a good cancer center because it's such a nice building. <laughs> <laughs> and then they kind of went along with it. Um, and so it, it is very remote. I mean, it's a, although the, the Institute of Global Health Equity that's on its way is also creating um, a, a whole new road, a paved road that's going to fill all the way. So that's going to improve transportation. Yeah. And cut down on travel time, too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What is the transportation like? How do patients get back and forth? Are they walking? And where do they stay? If <coughs> right. So, um, most people, um, I'd say, don't have vehicles. Uh, they usually do walk, um, whether they can get transportation from major cities. There is a bus system uh, within Rwanda, and there are um, abilities to travel sort of from areas, different areas. Um, but we saw frequently people on foot. Um, they, the hospital does have a sort of shelter, which like a roof, um, that people may be able to stay um, while they're for visits or if family members are admitted there um, to different either in, you know, a medical unit or pediatric unit. Um, so, so there are sort of support systems there, um, but it is all very, uh, very provincial. So, um, if you recall the the long sort of bed on, in a long hallway, that's pretty much how it was limited. Um, we did have a patient um, who was neutropenic. Uh, he was located sort of on the bed furthest away, farthest from everyone, and sort of an effort to isolate him. Um, but it's they don't have sort of negative pressure rooms or other more advanced techniques to protect patients. We they do the best they can. I want to make just two comments. One is that Florence is sitting in the room. The pathology I thought was they have a state of the art. Thanks to Parkinson. Health and putting that there. And so, turnaround time for maybe diagnosis 
And so I think that's helped um, cancer care immensely, kind of the diagnosis and yes. getting on the treatment. Um, and I toured their facility, they have digitized images, and they can look at them on their TV screen, so it, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, the second point I want to make is that what I think of the growth potential for fellows attending to go is that you know you have to deal with problems that they come up with. Like you said, you're carrying around the book, and you don't know what happened, and then you read about what happened, and you've got to make a decision on the spot um, about what to do next. You don't have the ability to you know, preview your clinic ahead of time. It's just whatever walks in the door, that's what you get for the day, and it's you know, um, 30 patients um, pretty regularly in the outpatient clinic. Um, stacks of charts this high just keep coming at you. But you have to deal with each one of them because they're coming from a long way. Um, and a lot of times you're on the phone with Pigali trying to figure out a plan with a surgeon. Uh, so it's like real-time decision-making. Um, I think that, and then thinking quick on your feet creatively, I think that's what it really fosters um, and it's actually a great experience. And I saw you know, Dr. Costa grow immensely um, from inpatient and working outpatient with her. You know, she has she has it all together. So, Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I would encourage um, whoever is interested to talk with uh, Dr. Chamberlain about it um, and see ways to participate in the future. I really think it's um, it was an incredibly rewarding experience, and I just hope to be able to share it with all of you. Thank you.